0: By which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. Before we open up God's word this morning, let's bow our heads together and ask the Lord's guidance on our study of his word. Our Father, again, we are thankful that we have your word to go to, that your word originated in your thinking from eternity past, that you revealed it through the prophets of the Old Testament and the prophets and apostles of the New Testament, and that in the process of the inspiration by God the Holy Spirit, that you also oversaw what was written, that it was without error in the original writings. And, Father, that we have this passed down through rigorous procedures of copying. Uh, We have your word. We can be confident that what we have as translations accurately reflects your word, what you have revealed to us, and that it is through your word that we learn truth we learn the invincible, everlasting, eternal truth by which we can live our lives, shape our thinking, and uh, live our lives for the future. Because we know indeed that this is true. Now, Lord, as we study today and we look at what is going on between Uh, the culture of biblical Christianity in the world around us, that you may give us greater insight into how we so often compromise truth we know, that we may come to understand the world around us, not be conformed to it, and may be transformed by the renewing of our minds according to your truth. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's open our Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, and we are in the uh, section from Ephesians 4 down through Ephesians uh, 4.24 as it should be paragraphed in terms of the thoughts that are there. But we're just in the opening part of that section. This morning as we get into verses 20 and 21... Our focal point is that we are to learn truth in Jesus. What does that mean? What are the implications here? And what is being said to us in terms of the contrast between the command of verse 17 to not walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk, but we are to learn Christ and we are to walk according to that truth. The section that we are studying here, verses 17 to 21, begins with this conclusion. The conclusion comes from what has been said in verses 1 through 16. Verse 1 started with the primary command that we are to walk worthy of the calling, that is, of the high position that we have been placed in as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ that we are adopted into God's royal family and we have been entered into that new organism that was founded on the day of Pentecost in A.D. 66, that is the church. There's never been anything like this entity, the church, in all of history prior to A.D. Uh, 33, and there never will be anything like it following this church age. As believers in Christ, we have been given privileges that are beyond anything that we could ever ask or think. That's how Paul closes out the first three chapters in terms of of his prayer. This is our high calling. We are to walk worthy of that calling, that vocation, that position, that ...with which we have been called in Christ. And the fo- verses following that describe the nature, the characteristics, the character qualities... ...that should characterize the life and the thought life of, a, of the believer. And then there is, as it were, a parenthesis that comes in verses 7 down through, uh, down through 16... And that is a focal point on what Christ has provided for us in order that we can come to learn Christ. Now, we don't see that phrase until we get to verse verse 20, where Paul says, but you have not so learned Christ, if indeed you have heard him and have been uh, taught by him. So in order to learn something, what must first take place? You have to be taught, and who teaches you? Well, that takes us back to Ephesians four eleven and twelve, where Christ has given to the church these gifted men, these gifted leaders, the apostles and evangelists, apostles and prophets, and evangelists and pastor teachers. So we see that it is through those communication gifts, those leadership gifts. Whereby the believer is equipped to do the work of the ministry, that we learn Christ. Now that puts all of this together for us in a, in a conceptual uh, framework, so that we can grasp that particular context. When we got into verses 17 down through 21, we point. I pointed out the initial command in verse 17 that when it says that we are not to walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk, walking is a figure of speech, a metaphor for how we conduct our lives. It covers everything in our life from what we think, say, and do. So we can summarize that command that we are not to think, live, or conduct our, our lives like the unbelievers around us. We should not take our clues from anything that we do in life from what is in the pop culture around us. We are to take our clues from what we learn in the Bible. So there is an emphasis here that the believer in the Lord Jesus Christ is supposed to be different categorically from the culture around. There is that distinction. We are not to walk As the rest of the Gentiles, I pointed out, that indicates, of course, that many in this congregation were Gentiles, but there were also Jews. And that was a focal point in the last half of Ephesians 2, that now in this church age, now there is no longer this distinction between Jew and Gentile, but we are united together in one new entity. It's referred to as a new man, a new body, a new building, and a new temple. Four different metaphors to describe this unity that we have in Christ. And so we are, as members of the body of Christ, to live in a different way. And as we uh, look at that, and the fir- one of the first ways that he talks about here in verse 17 is not in the futility of, of their mind or the futility of their thinking the uh, a purposeless way of thinking it's purposeless because only a person who is spiritually alive who has been given a human spirit at the point of salvation regenerated he has a new part component to his immaterial nature that enables him to uh, have the life of God, share the life of God. He's not spiritually dead or alienated from the life of God anymore, but he is uh, spiritually alive so that he can understand the things of the Spirit of God. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. And so the Gentile world around us cannot attain in their thinking the purposes that God designed for their intellectual activity. It may come to a lot of aspects of truth, lowercase t, but it doesn't have that overarching framework that enables them to fully and accurately interpret the details. The classic illustration of this is what happens in the Garden of Eden. After God created Adam, he then created the woman because he said it's not good for man to be alone. There's a divine purpose in marriage. And the purpose in marriage isn't for companionship. The purpose in marriage isn't for propagation of the species. The purpose of marriage is to glorify God. The purpose in marriage for many people is to achieve all sorts of different ends. We know of couples that are married because somehow It's going to enhance their ability to achieve greater power, whether it's in politics or the media or uh, Hollywood. And so they compromise many things just so that somehow together they're going to achieve these other things, whether it's wealth or recognition or, or whatever. People get married for all kinds of reasons. But the reason Christians are to get married is to glorify God through their uh, union in marriage. That is the purpose of marriage is to glorify God, not to make us happy, not to make us more fulfilled. All of these are just products of our self-absorbed sin nature. The purpose of marriage is to get rid of all that self-oriented aspect and to focus on our mutual mission of glorifying the Lord and that can take place in many many different ways depending on how we uh, how our talents are and how our uh, spiritual gifts are and so when we're talking about the futility of the mind the unbeliever cannot grasp that which organizes all of the facts And details of life. Adam and Eve were told to uh, be fruitful and multiply. It's interesting, that's the first command to be fruitful and multiply. The first command after it is stated that they're created in the image and likeness of God. And that when uh, Adam is then placed in the garden, he is told to name all of the creatures. God also tells them that he has provided for all of their nutritional needs and that they can eat from any fruit of the trees in the garden except for one, the fruit of the tree of knowledge and good and evil. The, all of that information I just told you is the result of direct revelation from God. That They knew these things. Now, a lot of that they could derive through empiricism, through observation. I'm sure... Uh, that Adam used a lot of empiricism as he identified, categorized, and classified and named the animals. And as they looked at the different trees in the garden and could categorize and classify different fruit and different flavors, they could understand a lot of things about their immediate environment. They could come to lowercase t truth just as unbelievers do every day. But there was one truth in the garden that they could not learn through either observation or reason and logic, and that was that if they ate from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they would die spiritually. They would be separated from God. They could only learn that one truth from revelation. By learning that one truth, that organized everything else so that they could understand all of the other trees in the garden by how they relate to this one tree that was prohibited. So that's the role of divine revelation in our lives. It helps us to organize correctly all of the other pieces of information, data, and knowledge that comes our way without using the Word of God and God's revelation then we are operating in an, with, with an empty framework. That's called the futility of the mind. And so Paul is going to go on to describe that. And that in the next part, he says that because of their rejection of God, the Gentiles' rejection of God, the result of that is that their understanding is darkened. There's no light. Light is always in Scripture an indicator of divine revelation. So apart from divine revelation, they're like blind men groping in an in absolute darkness trying to figure things out. And because they are also alienated from the life of God, they cannot understand the things of God because they are spiritually discerned. So they have... Uh, rejected God and as a result their understanding is darkened and they are separated from the life of God. And then the next two lines uh, tells us that this is because of the ignorance that is in them and because of the blindness of their soul. This is the result of their rejection of God and the suppression of truth and unrighteousness, taking that phrase from Romans chapter, chapter 1. Romans 1.21 says um, that although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts. Same word. And their foolish hearts were darkened. This is the same concept that we see here. And then the next verse says, professing to be wise. They have three or four PhDs. They have written 40, 50, 60 books. They profess to be wise, but without the word of God, they are fools. So it's clear that from these descriptions that each person is responsible for their own stubborn, obdurate heart. That is what is brought out in verse 19. They are past feeling. Um, Because of the blindness of their heart, they have uh, chosen a path of stubborn resistance to God. They are suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. That then, um, uh, moving from the command to we just reviewed the characteristics and the consequences is what we find in verse 19. Who, because they are past feeling, because they have hardened their heart, they are obdurate, they are stubbornly resistant to god 's revelation, they are past feeling this this callousness or scar tissue uh, has uh, made their soul somehow um, somehow anesthetized to the revelation of God as a result of their own. Uh, negative volition, their own rejection of God. And this leads to certain consequences. And if you take all of these terms there and understand, they basically refer to lawlessness. God's character is a law unto itself. We are to be distinct as God is distinct. That's Old Testament quoted in the New Testament as well. We are to be holy for God is holy. The concept of holy does not mean morally pure doesn't mean morally impure, but that's not its focal point. The focal point of hagios is the idea of separateness or uniqueness or distinctiveness. Often you and I have heard that holiness is a summation of God's righteousness and justice well that preaches well but it's not exactly accurate. The word is used many times the word kadash in the Old Testament or hagios in the New Testament describes inanimate objects inanimate objects such as the vessels in the temple or the vestments worn by the priest, the high priest well your clothes cannot be morally pure or impure your Dishes, your uh, various uh, things that were used uh, to serve the sacrifices in the altar can't be morally pure or impure. So more morality is a secondary idea. Context adds to the word holy in some places like Isaiah 6. But that's not the core meaning of the word. The core meaning of the word is to, is for us to be, when it says be holy as God is holy, to be set apart to his service. Now the secondary ideas come into play and holiness involves Uh, moral purity. We'll talk about this more and define it. Morality is really for everybody. Unbelievers can be quite moral. You have a lot of cults and a lot of legalistic Christians who have a high level of morality, but they have no spirituality. Spirituality always includes morality. Spirituality uh, does not uh, work with Immorality. immorality causes us to be out of fellowship, and therefore we cannot be spiritual, and we cannot walk with the Lord when we are immoral. But we live in a culture not unlike the culture of the Greco-Roman civilization. At that time, there were elements of that culture that were moral, but there were also many elements of that culture that had raised immorality to or let me change the metaphor they had lowered immorality to depths that had not been seen before and it is not unlike what we see in our own postmodern culture in postmodernism absolutes of morality absolutes of any kind are rejected there in their um, in the irony of their statement there are no absolutes well is that an absolute yes so at the core of postmodernism is irrationality but that is because in postmodernism they rejected the the conclusions of rationality in modernism now that's going to take us in directions that we don't have time for this morning but that's the the essence i'm pointing out here is that the results of rejecting god leads to a a, a resistance to God's standards and God's absolute standards of right and wrong, God's absolute standards of righteousness and justice, and it produces, it produces um, immorality. It produces lasciviousness. It, in essence, it produces lawlessness. Can you think of a better word to characterize the? nature of what we see going on in our own culture today, not only outside the church, but inside the church. We see increasing antinomianism. That's just a fancy word for lawlessness against the law. And so this is the consequence that happens. But there is a contrast that Paul brings out beginning in verse 20. verse 20, he says, But you have not so learned Christ. That's a strong contrast. On the one hand, there is the way the Gentiles, the unsaved Gentiles, live and think and conduct their lives. But in contrast to what is culturally and socially acceptable, What may be normative in the culture around us, the culture of your family perhaps, the culture of the place where you work, uh, the culture of where you go to school, the culture on Facebook or other social media. In contrast to that culture, God has a different set of standards. And you did not learn Christ according to the standards that you see in all of those examples I just listed so this takes us back to, of course, verse 19, which sa- said that their, the uh, Gentiles are past feeling. They have hardened their, their hearts in stubborn, stubborn obdurateness. They have given themselves to antinomianism, which is immoral relativism. In a word, uh, relativism is immorality. And so our lives are to be in contrast to that it's described their lifestyle is described in passages such as Ephesians 5:3 but fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness let it not even be named among you as is fitting for the saints colossians 3:5 says therefore put to death your members which are on earth fornication uncleanness passion evil desire and covetousness which is idolatry Second Peter 2.14 gives a different list, but similar. Having eyes full of adultery. This is what characterizes the false teachers. Uh, I, having ideas full of adultery. They cannot cease from sin, enticing unstable souls. They have a heart trained in covetous practices and are accursed children. So that is brings us to this contrast. Now, there are three key words in these two verses that we need to understand. The first is the word that is translated so in ephesians four twenty but you have not so learned Christ. This is the same word in a very well known bible verse and john three sixteen but God so loved the world. it is translated, so is a somewhat weak way of translating this word. The word hutas means in this way or in this manner. And it is used often to refer to that which precedes. So having described something, then uh, a writer or speaker would say uh, something along the lines, but not in that manner. Not Don't not so. Don't do it in such a way. Sometimes it refers to that which follows. Primarily, it's what precedes, which is what we have here. But you have not learned Christ in this manner. What manner would that be? The, what, the lifestyle, the thought life, the way of thinking that characterized the Gentiles. He's, again, drawing a sharp dichotomy between the way the world around the believer thinks and lives and conducts their business and their lives and the way a believer should. It says, you did not learn Christ in this uh, this manner. Now, when we look at the rest of that verse, the verb is the verb montano, which is from the noun disciple, which just means a student or a learner. Montano means to learn something. And so he, uh, Paul says, you have not learned Christ in this manner. When we get to the next verse, we'll see the third key word, which is didasco, the word that is used for teaching, for instruction, That is the role of the pastor-teacher. He is to teach. That's how he leads and feeds a congregation. If a pastor is not teaching and only motivating, they don't know what they're being motivated for if they are not taught. The primary role of a pastor is to give instruction and to teach the Word. And I believe it should be taught verse by verse. Ephesians 4.21 tells us, If indeed, we'll talk about that in a minute, you have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus. Now, just a couple of things that we have to think through when we talk about this is what is the basic essence of learning? In order to learn something, you have to be taught. We can be taught in various ways. We can be taught by example. We can be taught through giving of principles and instruction. But we have to be taught before we can learn. What is a prerequisite to being taught? Prerequisite to being taught is humility. People cannot be taught if they are not humble and willing to learn. So humility goes hand in hand with teachability, and we have to be teachable in order to learn. So we learn Christ a certain way, which implies that there was a way in which uh, this was taught. It was taught contextually by pastor teacher in this era which was the apostolic era the Ephesians had five years earlier had two to three years of instruction from the apostle Paul himself and he knows exactly what they were taught and what they learned and he knows that he did not teach an antinomian Christ there are a lot of Christians who think that grace means that you can just Uh, sin with impunity and do whatever you want to and sort of use 1 John 1, 9 like a license to sin. Well, God in his grace is always going to forgive us uh, whenever we confess our sin. But there are some people who just think that 1 John 1, 9 is a revolving door. And they just keep going around and around and around in a circle. If you had a home and had a revolving door at the front door, the object of the revolving door is what? To enter into the house and to live or abide in the house. Jesus said, if you abide in me and my word abides in you. Abiding is being in that house. The door, that revolving door, is the door of 1 John one nine. Now, as baby believers, we often... Just stay in that revolving door because we haven't grown or learned enough to deal with the sin in our life. All we can do is confess sin and we're restored to fellowship in a nan- for a nanosecond and we come out. But as we learn the word, we spend more time staying in the house. Staying in the house is walking by the Spirit, abiding in Christ, walking with the Lord. It's where real life takes place. But if we're just stuck in that revolving door using First John 1, 9 as a license to sin and say, well, I don't really have to do anything about this sin in my life. I'll just confess it and keep going. Well, you just keep finding it over and over again, and it takes time. Even when you're an older believer and you're maturing, we still sin. We just recognize the depths of that depravity a lot more. We didn't realize how sinful we were when we were a young believer. But as we grow and mature in the faith, uh, whole new panoramas of our own sinfulness are revealed to us. And so we sometimes think that we're never going to make it. Well, the fact that you are more aware of the the all of the different dimensions of sin in your life is a sign that you're growing and maturing and that we have... Uh, the grace of God who forgives us and cleanses us from all righteousness. So by keeping short accounts, we can continue to grow and mature. So Paul says that to them when he comes to verse 21, he talks about the fact that he uses this phrase, if, if indeed. And what's interesting about this particular phrase when we look at it in scripture is it's a combination of two words and I didn't put these uh, need feel the need to put these up on the slide uh, the first is the p- particle a e i which is translated if. But in this construction, uh, we have what's called a first-class condition. In Greek, there are three ways to state a condition that are used in the New Testament. There's actually four or five. But in the New Testament, it's primarily these three. The first catches the idea of if, and that first clause is called the protesis. I always remember that because P-R-O means first. So... Uh, In the first clause, if you have this certain construction, it's assumed to be true. And then he adds this second little word, ge, so it's a-ge. And that second little word reinforces the first and makes it more certain. And so he is stating not just if, but if with certainty. Uh, And so it can be uh, translated if... um, if indeed or if and i know something like that he knows that they have heard christ and been taught by him because paul was the instrument by whom they were uh they were taught and so he uh, understands this that that the reality of the fact that yes indeed they have heard him and they have been uh taught by him and this uh leads us to an interesting question, is what does it mean to learn Christ? In the process of learning, uh, in the process of learning something, we go through various stages. The first stage is we learn basic facts about something. If you think back, perhaps, if you're married, or even if you haven't, you have probably dated. And over the course of getting to know someone, you begin by learning facts about them. What do they like? What do they dislike? How old are they? Where were they born? What's their background? What do they like to do? Those are learning facts about someone. You can't learn someone if you haven't learned facts about them. But simply learning facts about someone doesn't mean that you have come to know them. It just means you know some things about them. So we begin, when we are learning a person, we begin by learning some things about them. And then, as we spend time with them, we learn a lot about uh, who they are. We learn about the nature of their soul in many ways we learn their likes and their dislikes we learn how they react or respond to different things and as a result of that we come to have a deeper and more personal relationship with them and that is what we find in this phrase to learn christ let me go back here to learn christ um let me go one more yeah, to learn Christ, this is an interesting phrase in the in the Greek because you have the word for learning followed by a, uh, a a person who is the object of learning. This is unique in Greek literature. So whenever something like that happens, Paul is trying to get across something that is probably more than the sum of the parts. He's talking about developing a rich, intimate relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ that only comes about not by just learning facts, but you must learn the facts. I can't tell you how many times I have listened to people who talk about how they love Jesus, and if you ask them anything of depth about Jesus, they know nothing about him. You cannot love someone you don't know. You can love your parents when you're six months old, but it is an infant's love, which is mostly gratitude for getting fed and cleaned and a few other things. Uh, we have to grow in our knowledge. When you're 25 years old and you say you love your parents, that means something completely different because you have come to know them and you have come to develop an intimate relationship with them. So it takes time and it takes uh, it takes involvement in order to produce that mature relationship, and so Paul uses this unusual phrase to bring that our focus to coming to know who Jesus is. That indicates that they have been taught by Him, so the learning is a result of teaching, and learning leads to knowing. Now, another problem that I've pointed out many times, if you've been listening on Thursday nights, you've uh, heard this, but not everyone here has been paying attention to that. We live in a world where in evangelical Christianity there are a lot of idioms we use that are not biblical. Oh, say it isn't so. And one of those idioms is... Do you know Jesus? And that has become an evangelical uh, shortcut for are you saved? But the Bible doesn't use the phrase to know Jesus to, as equal to believing in him for salvation. Knowing Jesus is something that only occurs after you're saved as a result of spiritual growth. Well, how do I know that? John chapter 14, following Jesus' statement that I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father except by me, Thomas says, Lord, we don't know, we don't know where you're going. Just prior to that, Jesus has said he was going to the Father. And, and Thomas says, well, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, this is a verse I just quoted, and then in verse 7, he says, If you had known me, you would have known my father also. And from now on, you know him and have seen him. Well, that just went right over their head. As we see Philip's response in verse 8. Philip said, Lord, show us the father and it's sufficient for us. Now, Thomas's question, uh, Jesus' response to Thomas was, if you had known me. And that implies that they didn't really know him. Are they saved? Yes, indeed. It's very clear all the way through John that all of the disciples except for Judas were saved. But here are disciples that are saved, but they don't know Jesus. And Philip asked the question, show us the Father and it's sufficient for us. And Jesus says to him, Have I been with you so long, and yet you have not known me? You have not come to know me, Philip. You believe I am the Messiah, but you haven't come to know me yet. In other words, there's no spiritual growth based on that more intimate knowledge of who Jesus is, what he came to do, and a development of that rich fellowship. In 1 John, John, who was present when Jesus said that in John 14, expands on this concept of knowing Jesus. He says, now by this we know that we know him. Now he's writing to believers. He's He's trying to help these believers understand the importance of their walk in the light, their walk of fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, how do we know that we know him? Verse 4, example 1. He who says, I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. Now, he's not saying you're not a believer. Because remember, Jesus told Philip he didn't know him and Philip was a believer. So what Jesus, I mean, what John is saying here is you may be a believer, but you haven't come to know Christ, to have that intimate walk with him if you're not obeying him. And the second thing he points out in verse 5 is, whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is, it's not perfected because it doesn't, it's not the idea of flawlessness. The love for God is matured, is completed. That's the idea of the Greek word there. By this, by what? By keeping his word, by this we know that we are in him. Okay, he's talking about the fact that knowing Christ comes as a result of spiritual growth and is evidenced by our walk of obedience. So when we have come to know Christ, that we have been taught by him, and we have come to understand this truth that is in Jesus... Now, in both clauses here, have been taught by him, and the truth is in Jesus, we have the same phraseology in the Greek, and it's talking about uh, being in the sphere of Jesus, or listening to Jesus that he has taught. It's not instrumental. He's not saying taught by him in terms of being taught by Jesus. It's being taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. Jesus. So as we conclude today, I want to point out a few things about truth because truth is in Jesus. Now that is a harsh statement to postmodern ears. We live in a culture that is dominated by postmodernism, but the reality is in a culture that is has, re- has rejected absolutes, were not simply postmodern. In a recent study done by Arizona Christian University conducted by the Barna Research Group, the conclusion was that a small portion, maybe 10 or 15 percent of Christians, are truly postmodern. The rest are eclectic. That means they just they they're going to be modernists this way they're going to be naturalists this way they're they're taking uh, they they're picking bits and pieces from all of the different anti biblical worldviews and just choosing what they like today it's one set of values tomorrow it's another set of values all of which reflects that postmodern relativism is part of it. So for the world, the Gentile world in our context today, they reject the idea of any kind of universal truth, including the fact that there is no universal truth, because that's a universal truth. So that's how irrational it is. That's why when people ask me, can you explain this? I say, no, the concept of explaining something to you Assumes a rationality that can be explained. You cannot logically explain irrationality. And that is the world around us. That's why you you have heard so many people for the last decade or so saying, What's going on in the world? It's so crazy, it's irrational. That's because the world has rejected reason as a means to finding stability and order and meaning, and they are swimming in the pool of irrationality. But the Bible confronts that head on. That's, that's when we're going to apply what Paul says here about not thinking or walking like the Gentiles around us. We have to understand that we are, as products of this culture, we are as infected by postmodernism and this secular eclecticism as anyone. But if we've grown and to mature in Christ then that's going to change. But if we don't understand what the characteristics of truth are and what the characteristics of postmodern eclectic irrationality are, then we're going to have trouble not being conformed to it. So just a few things to start us on the road to understanding this. Let's go to the Old Testament. The Hebrew word for truth is the word emmet. It is a cognate to the word amen, and that means to believe something, to trust in something as true and absolute. So the concept of truth has the idea of that which is eternally valid, eternally true, It also implies dependability and faithfulness. A cognate of this word was used to describe the foundation stones that went under the pillars, the two pillars in the front of the Solomonic temple. And it's indicating that this bedrock on which those pillars were placed was a solid foundation, unchangeable that it would hold in the midst of the storms that would come. But this word is used to describe the character of God. In Exodus 34, 6, we read, And Yahweh passed before him, that's Moses, and proclaimed. So God is proclaiming this to Moses. And he says, Yahweh, the Yahweh El. I put that in there. because English says, Lord, the Lord God, and you get confused. The words in the Greek, I mean in the Hebrew, are important. Yahweh emphasizes the covenant role of God with Israel, and El identifies that Yahweh is God. He's merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding. Notice that word, abounding in two things, goodness and truth. Truth exists in God. That's why when I put the uh, essence box diagram up there, and we have 10 different attributes of God, the second to last is veracity. It is truth. God is truth. Deuteronomy 32 4 focuses on the stability, the dependability, and faithfulness of a God who is truth. He is the rock. That Phrase is used many times in the Old Testament. In fact, sometimes it becomes another name for God, rock, where uh, Moses says our rock is better than their rock. And he's not talking about geology. He is the rock. His work is perfect for all his ways are justice. So in order to find justice, as in social justice or any kind of other justice, you have to go to the ultimate reference point, which is God. God is justice. It flows from being absolute truth. All his ways are just a God of truth and without injustice. Notice the contrast there. Because he is a God of truth, there can there is no injustice in him. So how can a postmodern culture that has bought into the atheistic Marxism as their worldview framework even talk about justice it's a relativistic concept for them it's irrational for them only if you have a god of truth can you have justice righteous and upright is he joshua twenty-four fourteen says now therefore fear yahweh serve him in sincerity and truth we have to serve God by means of truth and put away the gods which your your fathers served on the other side. Which your, put away the gods which your fathers served on the other side of the river and in Egypt. That's the same thing that Paul is saying in Ephesians four. He's saying you cannot walk like the rest of the Gentiles walk. You can't. You can't have some of their gods, some of their worldview, and some of a Christian worldview. There, there has to be a harsh breaking point between the two. And postmodernism, we'll talk about this more next time, postmodernism produces its own view of spirituality, which has infected most evangelical churches today because they have lost sight of the Bible as the exclusive realm of truth. Second, the Hebrew Scriptures affirm that there is only one truth, and that is God's truth. Psalm 25, 5, the psalmist prays, lead me in your truth. See, truth is God's truth because he is truth. Psalm 30, verse 9, what prophet is there in my blood, Uh, David says, when I go down to Sheol, will the dust praise you? Will it declare your truth? The implication there is as human beings, as believers, we are to declare the truth of God. It is God's truth. We are to live and walk. We are to conduct our lives both in how we think and what we think on the basis of God's truth. Psalm 26.3 says, "...for your loving kindness, your loyal, faithful, covenant love is before my eyes, and I have walked, I have conducted my life on the basis of your truth." Again, God's truth is the only basis for stability in our lives. Psalm 40, verse 11, Do not withhold your tender mercies from me, O Lord. Let your loving kindness and your truth continually preserve me. Truth preserves us. It gives us stability in the midst of all of the changes that take place in life. Psalm 43:3: O oh, send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your tabernacle. God provides guidance through the light of his word. If you don't know God's word, you do not know how to follow God, and you do not know God's will for your life. Psalm 45, 4, "...and in your majesty ride prosperously because of truth, humility, and righteousness." and your right hand shall teach you awesome things. It is God's word and God's truth that gives us soul prosperity, stability, and happiness and joy in life. Daniel 9.13, Daniel is praying to the Lord, and he says, As it is written in the law of Moses, all this disaster has come upon us, yet we have not made our prayer before the Lord our God, that we might turn from our iniquities and understand your truth because they did not understand god's truth it led to disaster it led to the judgment of 586 bc because of their idolatry and their rejection of god and it is god's truth that he uses to rule mankind psalm 89:14 righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne mercy and truth go before your face that is what comes out from god's throne god's truth protects us psalm 91 4 he shall cover you with his feathers and under his wings you shall take refuge his truth shall be your shield and buckler And God's word is eternal and unchanging, Psalm 100, verse 5. For the Lord is good, his mercy is everlasting, and his truth endures to all generations. In postmodernism, truth is relative, and it is changes from one generation to the next, from one culture to the next, from one nation to the next, from one subculture to the next. Everybody has their own truth. Now, when we come to the Gospels, Jesus is identified with the God of truth in the Old Testament. In John 1, 9, John describes Jesus. That was the true light which gives light to every man coming into the world. Light relates to revelation. John 1, 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory the glory is of on the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And John fourteen six. then Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If we are going to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, then Jesus Uh, tells us what that means in John 17, 17, when he prays to the Father, sanctify them by means of truth. Your word is truth. But fourth point, it's the normal practice, uh, unbelievers to reject God's truth for personal truth. Well, that works for you, but that doesn't work for me. It's true for you, but it's not true for me. It's all relativistic. Romans 1.18 says that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Truth suppressors are calling for the judgment of God. What have they done? Romans 1.25, they exchange the truth of God for the lie and worship and serve the creature or the creation, actually, rather than the creator. Think about the whole environmentalist movement. They're serving the creation rather than the creator. Fifth, to those who live according to the lie because they reject the gospel, there are consequences. Romans 2.8, but to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, that is a characteristic of our whole unbelieving generation out there. They are self-seeking and don't obey the truth, but they obey unrighteousness, indignation, and wrath will come upon them. Sixth, but God has given us the scriptures, the word of truth. The beginning of our study of Ephesians in verse 13, Paul said, In him, that is in Christ, you also trusted after you heard the what? The word of truth. God's word is the word of truth. So we are challenged that we are to live on the basis of God's truth. If indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus. The confusing thing is that most of us have grown up in a postmodern relativistic world and we don't realize the depths to which we have been affected by that. And the way the church, the evangelical church, has been affected by that, and we'll talk about that some last time. But when Jesus makes the statement, I am the way, the truth, and the life, there's only two options. He's either lying or he's telling the truth. And if he's telling the truth, then nothing else matters in life than to understand who Jesus is and to trust in him for our salvation with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Our Father, we're thankful for the clarity of Scripture. And from the time of Adam and Eve in the garden and their fall into sin, the human race has sought to redefine reality, to reshape reality according to uh, their own thoughts, their own ideas, and their own values. Thus, sin is nothing more than rebellion against you. All aspects and kinds of sin are just acts of rebellion against you and a rejection of your truth. Yet, in your love, you have provided a perfect solution for us, a solution that took care of the sin problem. You sent your Son, Jesus Christ, to come to earth to take on humanity, He lived a sinless life thus demonstrating he was qualified to go to the cross. And there he paid the penalty on our behalf for our sins. So the issue now is what do we think about Christ? Do we trust in him for our salvation or are we trusting in ourselves? And if we are trusting in ourselves then we are leaning on a very shaky reed for it will not hold us up. And the only thing that will sustain us is faith in Christ and a realization that he died for our sins. And the instant that anyone trusts in Christ, they are given new life in him that can never be taken away. Father, we pray that this would be clear to anyone who is here who's never trusted in their in Christ as their Savior, who has never understood that we are all born spiritually dead, separated from the life of God, unable to do anything in order to save ourselves, but you have provided everything and all that is necessary is simply to trust in Christ, to believe that he died for our sins and we are given new life in him and we are given eternal life. So Father, we pray that anyone listening today, anyone here, anyone who listens to this message in the future that if they have never trusted in Christ, that this great news, this good news, that Christ dying for our sins that we might have everlasting life, is very clear to them. And Father, for those of us who are believers, we pray that this will challenge us that we are not to think, live, uh, conduct our lives and our businesses like the rest of the Gentiles do, but there is to be a contrast between the believer and the way of life and the way of thinking of the unbelieving culture around us. We pray that you would open our eyes to the areas where we still need to work and we need to grow and we need to trust you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.